Hello, everyone, and welcome to this new podcast series. My name is Patrick Tian. I'm a licensed clinical therapist specializing in childhood trauma. In what this podcast series will be focusing on, we're going to be focusing on people's individual's expressive stories, getting to the heart of the matter that what happened to us in our childhood. We're also going to be omitting a lot of clinical jargon and just focusing on the story, not the diagnosis. And we're also going to focus on the relationship recovery process, which is the model of childhood trauma therapy that I do. It was developed by Amanda Curtin, LICSW, and is also known as RRP. So let's get into this episode. Here are six archetypes of toxic parents. For each one of these six, I'll be talking about the characteristics of the archetype, variations on that archetype how you might get triggered by people in your present life, by the archetype from childhood, and what makes it toxic, especially to children. And I'll get into also how to use these to explore your own triggers and your own stuck places in your adulthood. So here goes. Up first, number one, is what I call the reactor. The reactor is an extremely low threshold, reactive type of parent, usually reacting with anger or overwhelm or judgment or with some control and with a lot of drama, that can happen too. This parent usually has a lot of shame and control issues going on, and they are kind of like a raw nerve. It really doesn't take much to set off the reactor. And say if you wanna have a sleepover, it's a huge emergency or a burden, like when you're a kid. If you need something for school, it's met with anger or angst or a lot of sighing, which is the worst actually. If you need help or if you've gotten bullied, it's that they have this unempathic, what WTF moment with you, why now, why me? And they have such an attitude about your needs. If you're being abused by another parent or another sibling, well, what did you do to that parent or that sibling? I can't handle this anymore is the kind of reaction from the reactor. And if you're not into baking with them right now, I can't believe you would say no to me kind of stuff. The main characteristic about the reactor is making a child's situation worse because the parent is making it to be about themselves in their emotional reactivity. I've had many clients who experience, say, a sexual assault in their teenage years, only to have that parent have a huge shaming reaction about the assault, you know, and they're actually totally burdened by the child's situation instead of comforting them, being affected by what happened to them, and being helpful. They also make the circumstances around those assaults worse for the child. The reactor can often behave like they have an addiction to upset, and they may even seek it out. They can also have a significant kind of F my life kind of vibe to them. They often feel extremely victimized by life, whether that's real or imagined. They can also be highly neurotic, and they may engage in things of controlling any potential upset, like controlling what you're wearing, controlling what you're saying, controlling how they look. They may be early to everything in that neuroticism or hyper-focused on rules and routines, what you're wearing again. The world can be really, really small for the reactive parent, and they kind of create some chaos in that. The stakes can be very high for this parent, which they create, like the brownies have to be perfect at the bake sale, and I can't believe you're not helping me kind of stuff. Some variations on the reactor, there can be the variation of the helicopter parent, 
or a parent living vicariously through you. Sometimes the reactivity is around sadness, not so much anger, like you've really let the parent down because you didn't want to do soccer this year, and that they are in that downness for a long time. These are less aggressive variations where instead of feeling like you're in trouble, you feel like you're drowning in their heaviness and you're experiencing a lot of guilt. And sometimes the reactor can be somewhat infantilizing and they may overdo it thinking that you can't handle anything and they are reacting to the world for you. They're trying to overly protect you and it's just kind of a mess. So at the root of it, the reactor parent is reacting to their trauma in their narratives in their head part of healing is realizing that you didn't that they didn't have their emotional house in order and it wasn't about you they could also be reacting to being scapegoated in their childhood being the adult in their childhood reacting to the some kind of family tragedy like loss or poverty reacting to maybe even being the golden child and now growing up kind of mediocre and the world doesn't treat them the same way anymore they are reacting to the past in the present like with other childhood trauma survivors it's not an uncommon thing they're just kind of aloof to it and they don't have any insight about it what makes the reactor toxic to children is that children start to feel like they cause the reactivity, like they're the reason for the reactivity when it's actually something going on with the parent. Having a parent like this requires the child to walk on eggshells because they can be interrogated about small things and it's an energy drain on the child who will start to hide things and not ask for help from the reactive parent. The reactive parent is an ordeal to kind of survive. Children are often terrified of having needs because needs get them into trouble. Raise your hand out there if that resonates with you. Children can also absorb these reactivity behaviors or kind of absorb the reactor's worldview that everything is impossible and everything is hard and like everything is burdening when that's not fully true. How survivors get triggered in their present with other people. Survivors of the reactor parent can find reactive people in their present highly triggering. You might feel enraged or scared of Gail at work who has huge emotional outbursts over new systems or policies at work or say your in-laws who can't handle a wait at a restaurant and everything's gone wrong and they kind of make a scene. The other side is you might feel the need to soothe someone who is a reactor like this in your present or try to take care of them or own the upset for them, which isn't good. Reactors cause reacting. Moving on to number two is the I just work here parent. The I just work here parent is someone who is eerily removed and apathetic from their responsibility as a parent. Some examples, the father who walks away or simply walked out the door and never looked back or barely engages. The parent who treats their children as kind of like easy pets, like your goldfish, removed from your needs, removed from the connection. You're just there and you don't really affect them. Or another example is that you're bullied or abused at school or abused by a step parent. I just work here. Parent is like, I don't know, maybe go work things out with them. You know, I'm not really good with these things. Another example is say as an adult and you have your own first child, the I just work here parent expects you to do all the arranging and the traveling to have the child meet them rather than the parent eagerly awaiting to get on the plane and come to see you. That say the need for school supplies in childhood, needing help with an abusive sibling 
fear about the creepy neighbor next door who is a repeat offender. And the parent is just like, got me, sounds hard. They don't know your teacher's names. They don't know your friend's names. They're not really that interested in your dating life in your teenage years or whenever. You're on your own with the I just work here parent. Picture a retail worker who declines telling you where things are because they're like, I don't know, I just work here or don't know how to ring you up or don't know how to get you a new size or know anything about the products. I don't know. I, I just work here, you know, need that another size. Got me, you know, the basic teaching, guiding responsibilities and anticipating needs of small children or an adolescence is somebody else's job to this parent, to the I just work here parent. A variation on the I just work here parent is the highly permissive parent where you can do whatever you want, but you really need a protective parent who is thinking of your best interests and your developmental stages. Another variation, which is less fault, but still damaging is the parent who needs to work to survive, like say a single parent or a parent who is an immigrant assimilating into a new culture and they they don't really have a lot of opportunities so they're trying to make the best of it but there is extreme neglect due to not having a parent at home it's childhood emotional neglect a lot of the i just work here parent is going to be rooted in their attitude of their parenting so think about it that way think of the aloof disinterested that kind of stuff how is this toxic to children neglecting children is a silent trauma especially if things are provided for except care and connection and love, which is the harder things of parenting, children are going to continuously assume that this parent will make them a priority and they get continuously traumatized about that. Like, are they gonna show up for me or help me? The I Just Work Here parent can promise a connection thinking that that's all the child needs. I've had many clients promised a weekend, say with a divorced parent, only to be ghosted repeatedly on that weekend, like it's a pattern. This is also a behavior that we'll see in the in the child parent that we'll see later in this video. Often children can start to act out and self-destruct to get the I just work here parent's attention to try to get that parent to wake up. This is really a terrible setup where teens can get involved with drugs or become sexualized or start to cut themselves or become provocative or get themselves into trouble because they're testing that parent to see if they're gonna show up for them. How survivors can get triggered in their present with the I just work here dynamic. If you've had an I just work here parent, you might find yourself in similar relationships where partners and friends don't show up for you and you struggle knowing what is showing up for yourself? What, what, what would that look like if people showed up for you? You don't really know where the line is. It can also manifest in being triggered to rage about someone in your present not showing up for you. I've had many clients who had I just work here workaholic parents who get triggered by people who have a lot of excuses or are a bit messy or, or struggle showing up. They can really get enraged with those close to them who are busy or have other priorities going on. This was true for me. Like I would kind of freak out on people who had legitimate excuses, but due to my trauma around this. It's important to be aware of what is getting triggered. And I know a lot of these feelings coming from this type of neglect about feeling invisible comes with this type of parent. Moving on to number three is what I call the safer one. I think many people kind of understand this as I discussed this in a video I did on the other parent being narcissistic too, where I mentioned that most childhood trauma survivors have more work to do around a safer parent who wasn't the obvious big monsterish perpetrating parent. The safer one is simply the lesser of two evils. 
when growing up in childhood trauma, but it's really tricky as the safer one doesn't do the physically abusive stuff, emotionally abusive stuff. They don't do that in a pointed way. It's usually through neglect or they don't do the sexually abuse stuff or the sexually off stuff in a blatant way. They might put you in harm's way of those things or allow them to happen, which is the hard work around it. The safer one can often soothe you when the abuse is going on, but they don't get you out of there. They often try to get you to see the perpetrator side of things. They can coach you to make the perpetrator more happy and not so abusive. They really teach you codependency and submission. But the kicker is they always take the perpetrator's side when confronted with the truth or the idea of leaving. This really upsets the safer one when a child wants to be real about what is going on. That's when the safer one tends to become aggressive. Their vibe is just make things work, minimize the abuse, and they will break your heart when you try to coach them to leave the perpetrator. And they kind of half agree. But in the 11th hour, this is really a common pattern that with the safer parent is you might have gotten through to them to maybe leave the relationship, say, on a Tuesday and come up with a plan with them to leave the perpetrator on a Wednesday. And when the departure day comes, they tell you they've made up with the perpetrator and everything is okay now. The safer parent had the power to leave and protect you, but their fear, their trauma, their codependency, their covert issues, their loyalty to the abusers prevented them from choosing the right side. So in extreme examples, the safer parent can purposely put you in harm's way and think soothing will make up for that. Many safer parents are aware on some level of the child being around sexual predators, which is another issue. A variation or complication with the safer parent who is, say, not present due to distance or divorce. Some may not have had that power, such as in situations of involving parental alienation. And again, it comes down to the parent's attitude, like with the I just work here parent, about what is going on with their child. Some are actually just factually powerless. So how is this toxic to children? Childhood trauma, I say, is abuse around perception. The safer parent is such a mind F. As they get it on some level, they soothe and they're often aware of the abuse, but don't really do anything about it. Or they think soothing is the thing that they're doing about it. It's toxic to teach a child that abuse is okay. And if there's some kind of making up with the perpetrators, like that's okay, but only to experience the cycle all over again. That cycle continues often into a survivor's adulthood, which I'm sure you're familiar with. There is often a toxic, magical thinking modeled by this parent. If you don't make him mad, everything will be glorious. If you don't make her mad, everything will be fine. They also kind of model that perpetrators are really no big deal and that they, they're good people at their core. They just can't show it kind of stuff. The root of the damage is the child elevates the safer parent and starts to idealize them. Of course they would do that. It's like a survival mechanism that the safer one and having a fantasy around the safer one is actually what helps the child get through their childhood. But it is also an ongoing betrayal in the background done by the safer parent. How survivors get triggered and they're present by other people who kind of trigger them to these dynamics. This one runs deep, but I see a lot of survivors of a safer parent keep looking for a rescue in people who won't help. It's common in adulthood to continuously keep trying with difficult people. Survivors can replicate this dynamic by finding friends or a partner who still shames them when they're being abused by others. Like it's kind of like turning it around on, on them just like the safer one would. 
Um, we can find ourselves still trying to wake people up to take action on our behalf or for themselves. Or we can be with others who aren't wired for that kind of validation or we are putting our childhood issues onto that relationship. The other side is we can get enraged around issues around injustice or people not doing the right thing because unconsciously we're, we get triggered around the safer parent thing. I'm not saying that it isn't a problem in society that people don't do the right thing. I mean, it's a huge problem. But a button gets pushed when we see people with power not doing anything about injustice, not realizing there's some work to do about the safer parent. The safer parent, I really want this to be known, is the hardest parent archetype to work with because we've built them up in our minds to be actually safe and not at fault in our mind. The safer one is often a victim of their own perpetrating spouse, but again, they didn't use any protective power or their own self-efficacy and power for themselves due to the trauma and codependency that they have going on. We can feel immense guilt for them, but they don't have that same amount of guilt or, or for the child. It doesn't land home to do the protecting. Again, I believe that this is the hardest archetype to heal from for many, given the parents' stuckness in the fact that they tried to soothe. Holding them accountable seems really wrong to the survivors, but that's an additional what keeps us stuck. They were safer, but that was an illusion in comparison and given that they didn't really do any of the protecting. So moving on to number four is the monster direct opposite of the safer one. We actually don't need to spend a lot of time on the monster because if you had one, you'll very much understand this. So some behaviors of the monster. The monster gets enjoyment when their children are scared or suffering or really submissive. The monster can be fixated on one of their children, either being in competition with one of their children or becomes fixated on them and they become an arch enemy in their mind. And they kind of have this strategy of breaking the child that's often a sibling of many of my clients were like totally broken by the monster. The monster projects a lot onto their children. Um, they tend to be sexually abusive or they're aloof to it, doesn't protect. They can be highly damaging of gender roles, self-esteem, individuality. They will often regulate their emotions through violence. They can stalk their children into adulthood. The monster can make up these special rules with their children and live in sort of a you owe me. I own you kind of a vibe with their children and make them feel indebted and beholden to them. The monster parent can really live in victim, rescuer, perpetrator type drama. I've done several videos on that, the Cartman Triangle. The monster can be highly duplicitous as we will see in the method actor, other archetype later. Monsters are simply often paired with someone who is codependent, the safer one or a series of safer ones. They usually have very turbulent relationships. People are often in the neighborhood, in the community, or in the family. People are really intimidated of taking the monster on. And the monster will only submit to a higher level of authority like the police, but even sometimes that's a stretch. Some are super sadistic bullies who are intelligent enough to not get into trouble and they will fly under the radar in society. With the monster, think boogie person, boogeyman, boogie woman, like someone who's really a terrifying kind of character. Some variations are simply some other names is a personality disorder parents who engage in sadistic abuse, parents with significant mental illness that comes with a lot of aggression and hyper-focused on somebody, emotional abuse, criminal behavior, extreme public meltdowns, private meltdowns. They can also fixate on others. They can stalk. 
There isn't a lot of before and after variation with the monster, aside from an extreme change in mental status, like say a parent who was loving at one point and they got into some heavy addiction or that parent went through like a cognitive change, like with a traumatic brain injury. The monster can be any gender. You know, we tend to think of them as a male archetype or have the paradigm of that, like in my Lord of the Rings orc thumbnail there. Um, why this is toxic to children. It's almost like, how is it not toxic to children? Intense fear, leaving one's body as a child. I often think of the scale of a monster parent uh, looming over a small child, huge energy. How survivors get triggered in their presence to present day monsters, either real or imagined, or they can unfortunately get really involved with monstrous characters in their adulthood. Survivors can often mistake normal reactions of say frustration or negative feelings from others as being a monster. That's a sign that the survivor is projecting a real monster onto just sort of normal stuff in the present. Like someone not wanting to donate spare change at a coffee shop could be considered a monstrous move by a childhood trauma survivor behind them in line. The most common trigger for childhood trauma survivors of monsters is if they're parent displays a normal amount of, say, anger or frustration or upset. And that emotion triggers a survivor of a monster, and they go to a big place feeling that their partner is not really safe anymore, which isn't really good, especially if the partner is a good person. There's a lot of distortion that happens for survivors of monsters. They often create rules that their partner can never get angry with them or never get upset, which isn't really human possible. Like the couple would have to really kind of talk about it, but this is a common pattern. I've had clients also get fixated on the behavior of monsters in society where they might trigger themselves by continuously watching catch a predator shows or YouTube videos on sociopaths or like living out the danger and that keyed up energy through almost like watching is erroneously feels like it kind of keeps you safe or knowledgeable or something. I believe in watching those videos or the researching that they're trying to resolve or protect themselves in some capacity. And that isn't really good for them because it keeps you in a mode or a state of mind too much like childhood. Moving on to number five is the method actor. This one might be a little bit tricky to take in. The method actor is a toxic parent who does not have a sense of self. So they assume one in an extreme and inauthentic way. Method acting is when an, an actor immerses themselves in a role and essentially becomes the role, lives the role, they absorb it. They live in it for months in preparation. They start to believe that they're actually the character that they are playing. It's a more immersive kind of acting than regular acting. The method acting parent will immerse themselves in a role because they need to feel special. It's not an uncommon thing for childhood trauma survivors to do as well in the struggle for a sense of self that we don't get from growing up in safety. And I believe it's difficult to form a healthy sense of self from a parent who doesn't have one either. But finding a healthy sense of self is very possible with good therapy, especially a plug for group psychotherapy. That's where a lot of people are able to kind of get some mirroring and kind of know who they are. I was able to get a handy self to self from a really good therapist and from really good peers. So there's a lot of cognitive dissonance with this one. Some examples of the method actor parent is the one who gets into a fundamentalist religion and starts to live it a thousand percent and living in the role of, say, a pious church member or even a cult. And they start to police everyone else for the dogma 
that they've now fully committed to. They're method acting. They are that person now. Living in a narrative of being, say, a savior to others and that they know better than anyone else is sort of a method actor. Post-divorce or life change, totally getting immersed in the new partner's life, or they take on that new person's personality or their interests, like mom never golfed before, but now it's her entire persona. Even immersing themselves in the role as, say, a perfect parent or a perfect partner. But as their child, you see the cracks when they're not in public. This is a very public-facing kind of toxic parent vibe, assuming that they are in the spotlight, say, even when they're just at Target. They can be extremely of service to others and generous to the community, but not at home. At home, family should understand the toll that that role kind of takes on them, and they shouldn't expect much, so there can be a lot of neglect with this one. I've had clients who have had severe learning delays and problems in childhood, and their parent was a method-acting super teacher, available to all, loved by all in the school, but extremely neglectful and out of touch with their own child. The method actor is coping with their lack of specialness by trying to be a special person. Whether that's them, they're trying to be the mayor of the neighborhood who crosses boundaries and assumes everyone likes them, or they achieve special things like being having a doctorate in medicine or something like that. Like, but there's still no one home emotionally. Method actors are focused on how things look and performance versus being real and how things are. They are very well paired with the reactor archetype that we discussed earlier. Perhaps the worst aspect of this archetype is when a parent swoops in to the role of a parent and lies to your teacher about all the effort that they put into doing homework when that has really never happened. You know, like they're doing coverage of the neglect that they're, they have going on. Some variations, there's not a lot of variation, but there can be situations where the parent seems like themselves, but after a crisis totally becomes wrapped up in a religion or or in a movement or another person's life, like I mentioned, like they're going to do a clean slate and take on something new. How is this toxic to children? Method actors can be vicious. They can be indifferent. They're preoccupied. Um, Like with the safer parent, to which method acting is often really paired with, it can be toxic to a child's perception and their sense of self, can be toxic to their lovability if the parent has an inside persona and an outside persona. It's also toxic modeling to say to become the mayor of the PTA and then trash talk the whole organization because they don't elect the parent as president in the first couple meetings. Method acting specialness, again, that's very confusing to a child who, depending on how young they are, they will maybe buy into that parent parental persecution complex of the parent and like, oh my God, dad, you're the best. And I can't believe those people didn't vote you to be president of the PTA. Like, I know. (laughs) How survivors get triggered in their present by others or other method actors. Due to that early trauma around perception with the method actor, survivors can get wrapped up with other method actors in adulthood because they're familiar. They might get wrapped up in someone's sob story because it's so familiar to them if they had a victim-y method actor as a parent. Raise your hand out there if your parent's whole identity is wrapped up around drawing attention to themselves about how hard their life is method acting. Survivors can also find comfort in people who say that they have the answers but really don't, like having a method acting preacher or a public service person who, it's just like the parent who wasn't authentically choosing that station in their life because it was in their heart. They really enjoyed seeming like they had the answers. Again, acting. 
Survivors can also really get triggered around interpreting people as being full of BS or being manipulative. Like they can really kind of get big or try to call out the hypocrisy in others. Sometimes that's kind of like valid and sometimes it's just coming from a triggered place, a projection place of having the method actor where in childhood we really couldn't call them out, but maybe in our adulthood we start to like pick apart people's kind of logic and that kind of a thing. Manipulation is the key trigger dynamic here because method actors are constantly manipulating reality. Another triggering dynamic is say, you might get hypersensitive if your partner is trying something out with you, but not really that into it, and you lose your partner's humanity. Like you're faking, you didn't really wanna come on this hike and you're not really invested in this relationship. Again, we're projecting and trying to call out hypocrisy or fakeness. Hopefully that made sense. Rewind kind of like what I just said. You're faking, you didn't wanna come to this at all, and you're not really invested in this relationship. It's something that is energy directed at an actual parent. Projection is such a powerful thing that all childhood trauma survivors have to come to terms with and deal with when they're, to look at how they project. And finally at number six, this archetype is what I'm calling the child. And it has a lot of characteristics. The child is simply an, an immature parent but with many different presentations. Like with the I Just Work Here parent, they're totally removed from the responsibility that comes with raising children and are profoundly stuck in a developmental stage, anywhere from say toddler to adolescent. Some examples, and please be aware that this will ver sound very judgmental. The child can be the irresponsible addict who gets defensive and wounded when called out on behaviors. The child can be a parent who seemed to have children just to get emotional support. The child can be a parent who, like with the monster who was in competition with their child, like, I could draw two, you know, when I was your age, big whoopity woo. The child parent can really struggle with functioning, like paying bills, doing relationships. They can't get out of a low stakes job. They can't get out of their own way. The child parent can also be vindictive when you don't take their advice. Like, oh, I told you so. The child parent can have an extremely difficult conflict style. They often sort of say things like, why are you being mean to me? It's almost like their mantra. When you bring up some abuse from, from the past or issues from the past, an old school psychologist would call this a very primitive conflict style. The child parent is self-consumed and usually low functioning again. You have to do all the work for them. You have to do the work for your siblings because you might have been parentified and you have to remind this parent to get their car inspected or to make the appointments. Like they're not driving the bus, so you have to drive it. The child parent can immaturely believe it only takes five minutes to get somewhere when it actually takes 30. And that creates a lot of chaos and difficulty and poor modeling in childhood. The child parent is an immense source of shame and embarrassment to survivors who grew up with a parent who was that immature. When confronted or brought things to their attention, they might say that they are doing their best and you should give them a break. The child can engage in a lot of magical thinking. They might go through cycles of believing that they're going to win the lottery at any time or their aunt who is rich is going to leave them everything when that aunt just mentioned giving them a china set one day. The child can demand that the world not expect much of them. Like a hoarding parent is a good example. I was going to do it. Why did the neighbors have to call the city? Things are a lot harder for me than everyone else, you know. The child has extremely poor boundaries with their children as well as with other adults. 
and they can often welcome other dysfunctional, other children or adults into their lives. I've had clients surrounded by random strangers that this child parent would befriend and bring home. And those strangers were sometimes perpetrators where the child couldn't be real with their own parent afterward. Like, why are you bringing this up? Why are you being mean to me? I was just trying to help them. The child has a lot of off expectations from their actual children, like you need to come to them because they can't manage travel. You need to comfort them, and many clients were their highly immature parents' counsel, like even as children, like their little therapists. Should I divorce your father? Should I remarry your mother? Really crossing boundaries there. The child can often have dramatic up and down, on and off again, long-term trauma-based relationships with other childlike adults. Like they've been breaking up with the same person for 30 years in this codependent kind of childish bond. Some variations. The child parent can be high performing in one area. Like they could be a doctor, but be a total mess in other ways, like a high profile job or have status, but they have extremely limited emotional relationships. Some clients that I've had have been a child parent that behaves like a constant clown, like nothing is taken seriously. There is just constant goofing around approach to everything at really off times. Like they were three hours late to your wedding and joking about how they couldn't pry themselves from a TV rerun marathon they had going on. The child can be consumed in poor mental health, making them extremely limited or depressed. But there's a difference in being entitled to special care and then being totally unable to make their own care happen. But both are damaging. How is this parent toxic to children? It's toxic and it's modeling in the absence of help for children. It's toxic and it's modeling in the absence of help for the children. The child parent barely makes a parent-teacher conference or a doctor's visit for the child, or they can't handle the stress of those appointments. The children of the child parent can become extremely anxious around getting their needs met, extremely distrusting of other people around them because they were just often just betrayed and totally neglected. So they may often try to control variables or not believing that people can show up for them. The children often get good at avoiding or providing for themselves by becoming parentified. They'll clean the house if guests are coming in over because the parent is too disorganized or impulsively went away for half the day at the wrong time. The toxicity is the child parent becomes more and more as a disaster as the children continue to mature and grow. What I mean by that is a three-year-old doesn't really know how off their parent is around basics. But a 12-year-old is hyper-aware that the neighbors start to talk about how the trash isn't being taken out because there's no adult at home. So the child starts to fill that void in doing those things like handling the trash in order to avoid the horrific shame that comes with having a childish parent. The child parent also puts their children in danger, which is a toxic behavior. You know, Danger to maybe be a target in the community or at school because they're showing up with the wrong clothes on or something like that. Danger around not taking perpetrators seriously. Danger in the neglect of the highly immature parent. How survivors can get triggered and they're present by others to a parent like this is this can go in two kinds of extremes like with the other. Sometimes we're so wired to caretake for a helpless, immature person that those relationships kind of find us. From a young age, as we as survivors can become extremely helpful to immature people just like that parent. Like you take them to the DMV because they haven't opened up their mail in a year. 
So it's like our conditioning. The other side to that kind of trigger is getting really disgusted and enraged with immature behaviors and immature people, like the roommate who doesn't do their dishes, or you can even sort of get enraged by hoarders or people who are irresponsible in the community. And that's, I'm not saying those things aren't sort of problematic or the roommate who never does dishes. I'm not saying that that's not annoying, but a button gets pushed around the childish parent. Survivors may often find themselves in partnerships with a childish person just like that parent and will continuously try to get that partner to grow up through shaming them or getting angry with them or criticizing them. So there's a lot of projection going on. It's like they are still battling and trying to get someone to awaken for them. And they may find themselves with a partner who says the same thing, like, why are you being so mean to me right now? I said I was gonna get gas, why isn't that good enough? and you're on the side of the road 10 miles away from a gas station. So I'm just saying that these patterns can really continue into our adulthood. Raise your hand out there if you've ever been in a relationship where you were constantly trying to get someone to be more mature. It's not a good time, but that's the projection and the setup of this stuff where the work needs to be done. The child parent, like the safer parent, is extremely hard to do accountability work on in therapy because we've known since our toddlerhood how limited this parent is and how nothing really gets through to them. So many survivors have this like internal barrier to getting to the grief or the frustration or the sadness or the feelings of this kind of abuse, but it still is necessary to kind of get there. So some final thoughts on how to work on this. You can have a parent that is essentially just one of these archetypes, or you can be a collection of anywhere from two to six of these things. I had a parent who had all aspects of six. It doesn't mean you went through more abuse than others. All of this stuff is really unsafe to child development. So some combinations that are common in these six, say the father who is an I just work here parent and a child, they can also be your safer parent who is often paired with a monster. So the parent can soothe you a little from having a monster in your life, say with like treats or with food, but they don't protect and nor do they take it seriously, but they can also expect you to take care of them when they're being abused by the perpetrator, just like that child parent. Another combination is you can have a highly religious method actor who becomes extremely reactive and is a reactor. When you don't buy into their rigid religious rules or their beliefs, they can also have a touch of monster in them when you call them out on their acting. You can also have a monster who is a method actor and an I just work here parent. The method acting is pretending to be a pillar in community, but they're sexually and physically abusive at home while being extremely neglectful. Those are just some of the combinations. So what do you do with this information in this video? How to work with it? This video isn't just about naming types of toxic parents, although that, that's helpful to your healing, to be able to nail what was going on for you and your attachment with these parents. Even if it doesn't feel like an attachment, we're still there's still attachment. I avoided diagnoses in this because while it's sometimes helpful to get into those, the work and the issues of the aftermath is what really needs the processing and what really needs to be worked on. The big thing that I want you to use this video is working with your triggers, with your present people in your life, or people who just bug you. Why, why do people bug you? Does Gail from accounting <laughs> bug the mess out of you because of the fake inauthentic corporate vibe that she has? Do you take thinking about toxic coworkers home with you too much? 
That's a sign of this stuff. Gail might trigger you to a method-acting parent who was full of BS, and you can actually ease the annoyance of knowing it's not about Gail, but rather it's about having unfinished business to do with a parent who was fake, duplicitous, or fully bought into their work or religion while forgetting totally about you as a kid? Does your partner who you love and care for trigger you when they are on their phone and you want to connect with them? That might trigger you to an I just work here parent with those qualities. Your partner will maybe feel a bit selfish or checked out or apathetic to your inner child, and that's going to bring up a lot of anger and despair that probably doesn't belong to them if they're a good enough partner. Is that fully true? Inner children want to only focus on your partner or Gale from work or your father-in-law who feels like a monster because he doesn't like dogs in the house even when it's cold out. So you are most likely projecting. We all do it. Even if the person in the present is a mess or a jerk, or even if they're not that bad, we're still doing it because of these parental toxic archetypes. How? How to work on it? Couple things. Write down on paper or check out my Reparenting the Inner Child course on my website and my membership community and ask, what does this situation take me back to in childhood when you're triggered by anybody? Um, When Gail is being a cheerleader at a corporate meeting, who does that remind you of? You're looking for a toxic family member from childhood. What toxic dynamics or characteristics are coming up for you? In these moments when you're writing this down, how is that person different, even your partner or Gail, whoever, how is being a fellow employee at a whatever job different than being stuck with a toxic parent for two decades of your development? Here is another hack. It's one of my favorite things. Write out a long paragraph about what you want to say to your partner or what you want to say to Gail from accounting, unfiltered, Don't send this to them. This is just for you. A long paragraph about what you really want to say to them. This is to nail your projection of a toxic parent onto others. And that paragraph might even look like saying like, let's get if it's Gail. You're so effing fake. You act like this stupid company is a family. Are you effing kidding me? That's just gross. Get a life. We all hate it here and especially hate it when you speak for us when that you're so into this BS. And it's gross how you suck up and brown nose the CEO who can't even remember your goddamn name. But you keep trying to act like he gives a flying F about you or about us. Last week, he fired someone who was amazing because he didn't like how they set up their cube. And they have effing kids, Gail, you know. Rewind that for a second, what I just modeled there, what I just acted out. And does that maybe remind you of what you want to say to a parent? The hack is, would any of that energy that we've directed at Gail be something you wanted to say to a parent but couldn't? You're so full of it. You don't care about us. Like, that's the exercise. The paragraph about Gail is often verbatim. What was needed to say to your toxic parent growing up who was a method actor, who had some magical thinking about how great things were and were completely ignoring that the kids were being abused by another monster parent? Most survivors don't know how others trigger them to a toxic parent archetype or that they have these big pieces of unfinished business. That's what that paragraph is about. And I'll link a video that I did about unfinished business if you're not familiar with that term in the, in the description of this video. I hope that this was helpful to you or thought-provoking. You, know, you really can't nail your triggers 
or your projection until you can nail where it comes from. So that's the purpose of looking at these six. Check out my monthly healing community where there's a lot more prompts around these issues that we're working on in that community. There's also a Patreon if you want to support the channel, but the membership has more tools and resources. And I would love to hear your thoughts about if any of these or all of these really resonate with you. And as always, may you be filled with loving kindness. May you be well. May you be peaceful and at ease. And may you be joyous. And I will see you next time.